Christ Church, New Malden. Sunday the 18th of September 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Getting the Most Out of Sermons. So, sermons. Probably, in fact, many people would say definitely the most unpopular part of church that has ever existed. That part of the service where we have to listen, or at least look like we're listening, as the vicar or some other worthy delivers a 20-minute monologue. And sermons do have a terrible reputation, don't they? They're the thing that caused Abraham Lincoln to say that if you took all of the people that went to church on a Sunday morning and laid them out side by side, they'd be a lot more comfortable. In the eyes of many, both outside and inside the church, sermons are pompous, they're tedious, and they're largely ineffectual. And of course, that, regrettably, is sometimes true. But when it is true, it's a travesty, isn't it? Because sermons are meant to be one of the principal ways in which God's word is brought to our lives. Not the only way, but one of the main ways. And God's word is meant to be transforming, isn't it? God's word is meant to be something that takes hold of us and transforms our lives in an exciting and life-changing manner. So Psalm 119 in the Bible says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is there, in other words, to guide us and to give us direction, particularly through the darkness in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 in the New Testament says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's slightly more forbidding, isn't it? But what it's saying is that God's word can cut through to where it's needed, through surprising us, challenging us, and helping us to see far more clearly than we would otherwise those things that are good and from him and those things that aren't. So the question in our series, our Getting the Most Out of Church series that we began a couple of weeks ago, the question this morning, how can we make this more likely to happen through the sermons that we hear at church? Now the preacher, this morning it's me, obviously has a key role in preparing their talk. And a few years ago, we had a day for all of those of us who do sermons to think a little bit more about that task. What can we be doing as congregation members to get the most out of the sermons that we hear here at church each week? Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning and think a bit about is that one that was read to us earlier by Steve, from Acts chapter 8. It's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was one of the early Christian leaders who had to flee from Jerusalem after the murder of another high-profile Christian leader called Stephen. We don't know much about Philip, apart from he later had four daughters. But in this very brief story, Philip has this encounter with this Ethiopian official which included Philip explaining the Bible to him. In other words, Philip basically preaches to him. He preaches a sermon to him, essentially, on the passage that he was reading. 
And by looking at this story further, there are, I believe, a number of things that we can learn about how to get the most out of sermons here at church. And the first of these things is this. We need to remember that God's word is God's work. Now, in one sense, this is obvious, but it is important to remember when we're thinking about how to get the most out of sermons. And it's reinforced by what we see in this passage. As before Philip and the Ethiopian ever meet, God is at work. So God using Philip, being forced to flee from Jerusalem after the murder of Stephen, was part of this. But we're also given certain details in this passage to make us clear that what happens is God's work. So early on it says this, near the start of the passage, it says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We don't know how he picked up that message. It doesn't have to necessarily be a literal angel appearing in front of him telling this. It may have been an inward conviction. We don't know. But it's making clear that God was the one in charge of this process. And later on it says this. The Holy Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. And again, we don't quite know how that uh, was precisely conveyed to Philip. It might have been a very strong inward conviction rather than an audible voice, but it was God's work. So why are these details here? Why are they in the story? They're really there to show us that everything dramatic that happened in the early church, including this incident, was God's work. And it's the same now. Yes, we can think of all sorts of practical ways in which we can get the most out of sermons, just like preachers can think of all sorts of practical ways about how to deliver their sermons. But supremely, getting the most out of sermons is about recognising that anyone receiving God's word and being transformed by that word, whenever that happens, that's something that God and God alone can bring about. But if that's true... What's its application to us? Well, its application really is that if we want to get the most out of sermons, we need to first and foremost, before anything else, be praying that God would work through them. That's why the song that we have before the talk here at the 9.30 service is deliberately chosen by Barbara, who chooses our music for this service, precisely in order to do that. When Barbara picks the hymn, she tries to pick one just before the sermon that will encourage us to be reflective, to provide the context in which we can be inwardly praying that God will speak to us through what we're about to hear. But it's a good idea to try and pray before that point as well. It's a really good thing to be praying just before the sermon that God will speak to us, but it's good to pray before that as well. Now, it's a long time ago since Christchurch looked like that. But do you notice what is painted above the arch in that photograph? It's painted words of Jesus, this house shall be called a house of prayer. Can you see that? Now, many at the time that that was written, this was the Edwardian era here at Christchurch, many at the time believed, and uh, there are some people's accounts from the time where they definitely interpreted it this way, that that was mainly there to make sure that people were quiet as they came into church before services. 
The idea was that everyone, and when I was a child, I remember church was still like this. Everyone would come in very quietly. It would be totally still. And certainly people at the time that that was painted above the arch there interpreted this statement as telling everyone that they should be very quiet before the service. Now, that photograph comes from around about 1906. And, of course, we have a very different approach to church now, don't we? With all the joyous noise caused by our children, which none of us, I think, will be without, not to mention the fact that most of you arrive around 9.40 for this 9.30 service. <laughs> Slight dig there, but one done in love. But it's really important that as this church goes forward and as we rightly become more informal and more accessible, and that is a huge part of the aim here at Christchurch, it's really important that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And particularly with the advent of Shush Free Church, that's what we tend to call this service, it's important that we don't forget to be praying. That we don't forget to be praying that we'd hear God's word in these services and that that word of God would transform us. So that is the first and probably the most important thing that I want to say this morning about how we go about getting the most out of sermons. We've got to remember that it's God's work and therefore we should be praying that God will speak to us through the sermons that we hear at Christ Church. But closely following upon it is this, getting the most out of sermons Self-motivation is crucial. You see, before Philip and that Ethiopian official met, that Ethiopian had been to Jerusalem to worship. He'd travelled to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning home. Now, non-Jews, like the Ethiopian, did have a place within the temple to worship God. It was known as the court of the Gentiles. Let's see uh, the Jerusalem temple there. Can you see those wide open spaces either side of the main bit in the middle? And if you've got good eyesight, you'll see that those bits are described as the court of the Gentiles. That was the part of the temple that was deliberately built so that non-Jews, those from presently outside God's people of Israel, could nonetheless come to the temple and worship God. But they were really up against it because that was also the place or became the place where those people who ran the temple set up all of the stalls to sell sacrifices and change people's money. That's why Jesus overturned those stalls at a crucial point in his ministry. And it's very significant that the words that Jesus used when he did that, his action in the temple, the words that Jesus used were the same ones that used to be over that arch. But the words over that arch missed a crucial part out. Because this is what Jesus said when he cleared the temple. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. That's the bit that used to be above the arch there. But look at the crucial bit that they left out. My house will be called a house of prayer. Why? For all nations. In other words, not just for Israel. That's the reason why Jesus was so angry in what they'd done to the temple. What he was most concerned about was that the temple was made, being made inaccessible to those outside this small clique of Israel. It wasn't so much that Jesus was concerned about materialism or lack of reverence, those things may well have been true, but Jesus' action in the temple was because God's people had made it exclusive. They had kept out those who were meant to have a place there. They'd made uh, the court of the Gentiles 
into a place that was simply full of stalls and where people found it hard to worship. Now, after Jesus' action, it was a key thing that resulted in his subsequent death. But presumably, all that buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles restarted again after Jesus' action. And it would have been present when this Ethiopian, sometime later, went to worship there. But against all the odds, he nevertheless did worship there and was seeking God. So he was spiritually searching. He was self-motivated. And this spiritual searching, well, it continued afterwards with this official as he returned home to Ethiopia, sitting in his chariot and reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, he was really struggling to understand it before Philip appeared and explained it, but the motivation that he had before their encounter was crucial. It meant that once Philip did speak to him, once Philip did explain what it was all about and opened up God's word to him, he was knocking on an open door. And if we want to get the most out of sermons here at Christchurch, we'll show a similar self-motivation. Those of you here who've been teachers, school teachers, particularly of people studying for GCSEs or A-levels, as I was, I was a teacher for seven years, you'll know what a difference it makes once those students become self-motivated. When you're teaching exam classes, as I did for seven years, once the students become self-motivated, it's a completely different business teaching them because they're working on it already, they've got the right attitude, and they can soak up everything, pretty much, that you're trying to convey to them. It's precisely the same with sermons. When people are self-motivated, when they really want to learn, as a preacher, you're knocking on an open door. So those people who get the most out of sermons here at church will normally be those who are already reading their Bibles a bit at home. Even if, like that Ethiopian eunuch, that means encountering some bits that don't make much sense. But it's still crucial. Belonging to a home group. Home groups are small groups where people gather together to read the Bible, discuss it together. It's much easier to understand the Bible when you're in a group with other people and hearing their questions and their insights and so on. Belonging to a home group is beneficial for loads of reasons. You get a support, you get people praying for you, you get to... Uh, know a great bunch of friends, but also it helps people to get far more out of the sermons that they hear on a Sunday. And the same applies to listening to the various podcasts that exist. If you've got access to the internet, which I think most people here have got, there's some fantastic stuff. There's some pretty dreadful stuff as well, but there's loads of fantastic stuff that can be listened to. And that includes our own sermon archive. So Tim mentioned earlier about maybe listening uh, to the talk I did last week on the faith of Her Late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. But all of the sermons, uh, certainly when the recording equipment uh, doesn't fail, uh, all of the sermons at this church are uh, there uh, on our sermon archive. We have videos now of them as well, but we also have an audio version. There's quite a number of people who say to me that they listen to them. One person actually at this church a few years ago said, are the sermons deliberately 20 minutes because that's how long it takes to get from New Morden to Waterloo? And I said, no, no, that, that is just a coincidence. We do not time the length of our talks to the time you're on the train, but it's quite a good idea. But it enables people to listen to talks again, because sometimes there'll be stuff you hear and you think, did I hear that right? Um, and you can go back and listen to it again and maybe come and question me about it. 
But the broader point I'm making is that self-motivation is something which is crucial. And that leads on to another point, which is this. Getting the most out of sermons, being prepared to admit ignorance and ask questions. And that's what we see in this passage, don't we? This Ethiopian was a high-up official. He worked for the Queen of Ethiopia. In fact, he was pretty much her Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was clearly pretty able and brainy, but he was prepared to admit to this stranger that he didn't understand the passage from Isaiah that he was reading at all. And then he was prepared to ask this very specific question about who this passage was referring to. And having that sort of humility to admit stuff that we don't get, and of course this applies to all of us, me as much as anyone, it's essential for getting the most out of sermons. By and large, it's only children who don't find it hard to admit there are things they don't know or understand. That's a big reason why Jesus said that to enter the kingdom of God, we need to become like a little child. It's one of the reasons I love going into schools and doing assemblies and talking to classes, because children have no worry, by and large, about omitting stuff they don't understand. So their hands shoot up, and usually their questions are spot on. They're absolutely vital questions. We had a sermon series, actually, at this 9.30 service a few years ago called Questions Our Children Ask. Because often children ask the very best questions, and we built the whole series. It was for the grown-ups, the kids were out of their groups, but it was based around the questions that children ask. And asking questions about things we don't understand is a crucial part of self-motivation in any learning, and it applies to our faith as much as anything. And the answer that that Ethiopian received to his questions, as Philip essentially preached to him, is also instructive, because the next thing I want to draw attention to is this. How do we get the most out of sermons? We need to always look for how the Bible points us to Jesus. See, the Bible contains loads of things that are really tricky, doesn't it? Stories of strange events and gory battles, weird miracles, complex details about rituals and sacrifices and so on. And sometimes, like that Ethiopian official, we're totally unsure what to make of it all. But the key to a Christian reading of the Bible is to, in every case, think about how it's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus, according to the New Testament, came to be the fulfillment of everything that came before him. And that means all of the stories and all of the details within the Bible are somehow pointing further to him as the final revelation of God and the rescuer that he sent to save us. And that's what happens in this story, doesn't it? This Ethiopian official in his chariot is reading from the prophet Isaiah. And that part of the prophecy, chapter 53 in our Bibles, where Isaiah speaks of a strange, unnamed figure called God's servant, who goes through terrible suffering on behalf of his people. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch isn't sure whom the prophet is referring to. And there have uh, been debates about that question ever since, with Jews and Christians giving very different answers. But the Christian answer, and the one that Philip presented, is that this servant calling that was originally given to Israel, Jews rightly believe that, was fulfilled in Jesus coming to be Israel's servant king, to die so that everyone in the world not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, like this Ethiopian, could be forgiven and restored. 
Now, they were in this chariot for some time, and perhaps Philip then spoke about how the subsequent chapters of Isaiah flowed on from this. So, chapter 54 of Isaiah, following chapter 53, which is all about the suffering servant, chapter 54 of Isaiah speaks about the consequent renewal of God's covenant, God's agreement with Israel that flowed from the servant's sacrificial death. And then Isaiah 55 follows on. It's all about God's renewal, God's restoration of creation that flowed from that renewal of the covenant. And then Isaiah 56 that follows on. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole book. Isaiah 56 shows crucially how those previously excluded from God's people were now, because of what Jesus has done, welcomed into it. And that's a passage which, when we look at it, includes explicit mention of those who were foreigners and those who were eunuchs. Those who previously, because of imperfections to do with their body or what had happened to them, were previously not allowed to belong to God's people. It's a complex question why that was the case. But they now were all welcome into God's people. And so that chapter 56, very relevant to that Ethiopian official, completely flows on from that passage that he was looking at. And a vital part of getting the most out of sermons is to constantly look for how the bit of the Bible that we're looking at points us to the Jesus who came to rescue and include us. Sometimes because it shows the bad stuff that Jesus came to sweep away. There's plenty of stuff in the earlier parts of the Bible that is very restrictive, that's very exclusive, which helps us to understand how wonderfully inclusive Jesus is because it shows us the things he came to sweep away. And at the centre of Christianity, when all is said and done, is God sending Jesus for you. Not just for little Lyra, who's fallen asleep now, who we saw christened this morning and joined to Christ. That's what christening means, being joined to Christ, joined to Jesus. At the centre of Christianity is God sending Jesus for little Lyra, but for every single one of us. And we'll get the most out of sermons here at Christchurch when we're actively looking to learn more from the Bible about what this means. What does it mean to be joined to Jesus? What does it mean to be, to be christened, to baptise, to become part of him. Why is that necessary? Why do we need that? And when we are determined to find out more about the amazing things that God wants to flow on from him sending us Jesus, that stuff where Isaiah 54 and 55 and 56 follows on from Isaiah 53, probably the most famous passage in the whole of the Old Testament, but those subsequent chapters are important as well. And when we're really thirsty and committed to learning more, then we get more of the blessings of what it means to be joined to Jesus. And lastly, finally, getting the most out of sermons, it's not just about sitting there and listening or even just praying that God will speak to us. This bit's crucial. We should always be seeking to make a practical response. We don't know how long Philip and the Ethiopian official sat in that chariot talking about Isaiah 53 and its context, but eventually they came along to some water. And realising that God had sent Jesus for him just as much as anyone else, the eunuch asked if he could be baptised. Suddenly occurred to him, 
you know, if I can enter God's people, then what's to stop me being baptized? And that's precisely what happened. So a little bit different from the baptism we had this morning. We could have flooded the church, I suppose, and had me up to my waist baptizing Lyra. When we baptize adults, which we do from time to time, we do get a pool and we plonk them completely under. I think Myra, Lyra might have had a few things to say about that if we tried it this morning. But baptism is another word for christening. It's another word for what we saw happen to Lyra earlier in this service. Sometimes baptism happens to babies like Lyra, sometimes it happens to children and sometimes to adults, but its meaning is always the same. Baptism, christening, is about being joined to the Jesus who came for everyone and being committed to an ongoing life of active obedience and response to God. That's why I did that message in the middle of the church this morning. That's why I always do that at every baptism. It's because baptism, at whatever age it takes place, is all about being assured that we belong to Jesus, being given that security of knowing that we're totally part of his family, just like Tom and uh, Leanne want Lyra to know from her earliest moments that she belongs to them, that they love her to bits, that there's no debate about that. But that's meant to then be a springboard to Lyra living her life in the best way possible, partly because of the security of knowing that that love is non-negotiable. Now, the same happens in a baptism. We receive this absolute assurance that we belong to God, but it's meant to then be a springboard to us living in the best possible way on behalf of God in the world. The practical response to God's word is crucial. God's word is intended to bless and enrich our lives by strengthening the relationship with God through Jesus Christ that we're brought into. The relationship that we witnessed Lyra entering into this morning. So lots of things can help us to get the most out of sermons. I've covered quite a few things this morning. But being prepared to act on what we hear, that is crucial and indispensable. It is about recognising that God's word is God's work. It's about self-motivation. It's about being prepared to ask questions. It's about looking for where the Bible and sermons point us to Jesus. And it's about this commitment to a practical response. So... I'll pray that we'll all, me included, be praying further and being determined to get the most out of sermons here at Christchurch. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the baptism of Lyra earlier and what it indicates not just about her status but uh, the status of all of us who are baptised into your family, who are christened. We ask that you'd help all of us to seek to respond to you so that we can be further transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.